scripture reading this evening is from Amos. We'll read several selections, starting with Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. Amos 5.11 Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. And finally, Amos 8.4-6 through 6. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat? The word of the Lord. What do you think makes God angry? Well, according to the prophet Amos, economic justice, or rather injustice, is something that really troubles God's heart. And the book of Amos is really about that. The book begins, the word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That tells us a lot. Amos is prophesying in a time of economic prosperity and political stability. King Jeroboam in the north is busily expanding his kingdom, and one of the things that he's done is he's been able to secure trade routes as he's expanded, and in doing that has brought great wealth to the the cities of the empire. And if you do a quick read through the book of Amos, uh, you'll notice a lot of little clues about how prosperous they were. You'll see signs about winter houses and summer houses and big parties and lavish perfumes and lots of excess. You'll see that religion was prospering Two, that worshipers were flocking to the shrines and singing hymns and making sacrifices. You'll see a reference to the day of the Lord, and what they believed that would be would be this wonderful day when God would come and vanquish all the enemies of Israel. And then one day at the royal chapel in Bethel, where the king himself worshipped, a rancher from the south, showed up and started to prophesy. And in the midst of the smell of sacrifices and the singing of hymns, he stood up and he said, Thus says the Lord. And he started to preach a sermon. And the first sermon that we have from from him is one that begins by denouncing all the enemies of Israel. And if we could put that first map up there, if you're interested in studying this, you could read chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 6. And he has a number of uh, seven different words of prophecy, of oracles, against all the enemies of Israel. And he starts off with with, uh, uh, Samaria, which would be uh, 
or rather Syria, which would be up north. He has one against Gaza. He has one against Tyre up on the left there. He has one against the Edomites. He has one against the Ammonites. He has one against the Moabites. And mostly, if you look at these, what he's talking about are war crimes. He's calling these people terrorists, essentially. He's saying, God is going to hold you accountable for the horrible things you've done in war. So step back for a moment. Imagine Amos at the shrine, bringing these powerful oracles against the enemies of Israel. They're loving it. This is good news. This is like preaching against ISIS. And then he brings it a little closer to home, and, and he starts talking about Judah in the, in the south and saying that they've strayed from God too. And then the crowd would get a little silent because that's getting a little close to home. And then finally, he brings that word against Israel herself. And uh, I've got in a little different translation if we should pull that first one up. Uh, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And now he's going to give five different examples of how Israel oppresses the poor. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who've been fined. First of all, the, they're selling people into slavery who cannot pay their debts as small as a pair of sandals. They're turning the poor man away from the courts. They're sexually assaulting vulnerable young women. The clothing of a poor man that would be given as security for a debt and was supposed to be returned at nightfall so that they wouldn't get cold was being kept. And money paid for fines was being used for partying. You have to imagine the shock value here because this is like a sermon that begins detailing the war crimes of ISIS and ends with, and you know what? Israel, you're as guilty for the way you treat the poor. So you can imagine how shocking this would have been. Apparently, economic justice matters a great deal to God. Let's go back and, and remember just briefly why that's true. When the Israelites entered the promised land, what's the first thing that God does? He gives every tribe their own land. Everybody's supposed to have their own property so that they all have shared access to the resources. Now, what's significant about that is that the Canaanites did it very differently. The Canaanites had a few people who had all the property and everybody else served them as sort of like serfs. And, and this is a little bit of a complicated idea, but I, I think it's an important one. Israel's evangelistic strategy was their economics. One of Israel's, I should say that, one of Israel's primary ways of witnessing to the glory of God was the unique way that they dealt with money and how they cared for people who didn't have much. 
Now, God, uh, the first lesson he teaches them when, when they come out of Egypt in that corrupt economic system, what's the first thing he does? He teaches them the lesson of manna. And he teaches them that in God's economy, there's always enough, but never too much. In God's economy, there's enough for everybody to go around, but don't hoard it. You remember what happens when they hoard the manna? It rots. I don't want anybody to have way too much, and I don't want anybody to have too little. We're all in this together, and I'm going to provide every day. And that's something we need to keep in mind behind this whole story, is that classical capitalist economics is built on a theory of scarcity. There aren't enough resources to go around. Kingdom economics are built on a principle of abundance, that God has enough to meet our needs. Well, God knows that over time, war, natural disaster, greed, foolishness will result in a lot of people losing their land and their way to make a living. And so he passes all these laws to protect them. Uh, slaves are to be released, Hebrew slaves, every six years. Workers are to be paid promptly. Every laborer was to rest on the Sabbath. Farmers were to leave produce on the ground so the poor could glean from it. Wealthy Israelites were not to charge interest on loans to poor Israelites. If a poor man pledged his cloak, he was supposed to get it back by nightfall. Merchants weren't supposed to cheat the poor in the marketplace. Tons of the Torah is about money. And the most sweeping economic legislation is the law of the Jubilee. It's in Leviticus 25. If you're interested, you can look it up later. And and it's this idea that every 50 years, give it all back. (laughs) Is that... Wow, how about an idea? Now, why would he do that? Well, if we put the next verse up, this is why. No land may be permanently bought or sold. It all belongs to me, God says. It's not your land. You only live there for a little while. (laughs) That's, That's the heart of biblical economics. It ain't yours. And you've only got it for a little while anyway. So this is very, very foundational to to how Israel is supposed to witness to the world. And and they had turned their back on these laws. Now, one of the things that you see in this, there's really two foundational ideas, and it's all rooted in what I would call the Trinity. Now, they're not using that language yet, but the Trinity is this idea of this mutually collaborative community that, that we, we find in the church, right? Where, where we're all submitting and sharing and loving with each other. That's the vision for Israel, this collaborative Trinitarian community where everybody's sharing and caring for each other. It's not communism. Some have more, some have less. Everybody's supposed to work for it. It's not that everybody has exactly the same amount. But it is the idea that we're all in covenant together and our needs are taken care of together. Now, Israel turned her back on that. And so we start to see some some pretty rough words in Scripture, some of the roughest words in all of Scripture. Uh, Amos 3.15. God says, look, I'm going to tear down your winter home. You you know that mountain mountain house? I'm going to take it. You know the summer house you've got on the shore? I'm going to take it. Houses decorated with ivory and all of their mansions, they'll be gone forever. I've spoken. (laughs) He's saying, look, Israel, you've built a society 
where you have forgotten that my desire was that everyone have enough and that the gap between the rich and poor doesn't get so great that some people just fall through the cracks. You forgot that, and I'm not going to put up with it. I'm not going to bless a society that has this much economic injustice in it. Does this scare you guys a little bit? It should. One of the harshest prophecies in Scripture comes next, and I almost debated reading it. I mean, it sounds sexist. Um, it is sexist, but it is what it is. This is what the Word says. Uh, you, women of, you women of Samaria are, are, are fat cows. And, and Samaria was a mountain. That's where the wealthy people lived. And these are like the, the, the wealthy housewives of uh, Samaria. I don't know. Uh, you mistreat and abuse the poor and the needy. Then you say to your husbands, bring us more drinks. I, the Lord God, have sworn by my own name that one of you will be left. You'll be taken away by sharp hooks. You'll be dragged through holes in your city walls. You'll be thrown toward Harmon. I, the Lord, have spoken. Whoa. And, you know, the, the way when you're taken captive in the ancient world is they would put a hook in your lip and attach a rope to it and drag you away. And this happened 15 years later. Well, he goes after the men in chapter uh, uh, 4, or rather in chapter 8. And we'll read that again. Um, you people crush those in need. You wipe out the poor. You say to yourselves, how much longer before the end of the new moon festival? When will the Sabbath be over? Our wheat is ready and we want to sell it now. We can't wait to cheat and charge high prices for the grain we sell. We will use dishonest scales and mix dust in the grain. Those who are needy and poor don't have any money. We'll make them our slaves for the price of a pair of sandals. Hey, I, the Lord, won't forget any of this. Though you take great pride in your ancestor Jacob. So the lion is roared. Such a society will not endure. God will not stand for it. Well, is there any hope? There's a little bit of hope. Tucked away in chapter 5. Hate evil, God says. Love good. Establish justice in the gate. That's where the courts were. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious. And then the the book does end on a word of hope in chapter 9. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. So this is the message of Amos. God cares about economic justice. His vision for Israel was that everyone has enough and that the gap between rich and poor not grow too great. And when Israel forsakes this vision, God pronounces judgment. Now here's what is so hard about studying the prophets. Um, and we're done next week. Then we go to Lamentations. <laughs> you know, so we're, uh, we're going to do something real fun after Easter, I promise. It's just humor in the Bible or something like that. But um, So I don't know how we got here, but we're here, so we're going to stick with it. So you've got a theocratic, pre-modern society that is, has an agrarian economy. And, and you've got pro- a prophet speaking into that. 
Now, how do you apply that teaching to a you know, postmodern capitalist democratic society? It's not easy, but for starters, I think we can observe that our society does have a growing gap between rich and poor. And I just pulled a couple of pieces of evidence here. You can do all your own research. It's all over the internet. But 1% of the people have 22% of the income. CEO pay has grown 98% faster than typical worker pay since 1978. From 2009 to 2012, the incomes of the top 1% of American families rose 31% while the incomes of the bottom 99%, uh, I mean, I don't think it's 99, uh, whatever that would be, stayed the same. Yeah, okay, okay. Since the 1980s, the lifespan of college-educated white women has increased. The lifespan among white women without a high school degree has decreased over the same period. The net worth of college-educated American households with children rose by 47% between 1989 and 2013. The net worth among high school educated households fell by 17% over the same period. The American worker today produces twice as much in an hour of work than they did in 1973. Hourly wages for those workers have gone up about 10% over this period. Executive compensation has increased by 1,000% over the same period. You know, and you can say, oh, I don't agree with that statistic, or I've got another statistic, fine. You do your own research. Everyone will agree that there's an enormous gap here. Um, Robert Putnam, the Harvard sociologist, recent wrote, recently wrote a book about this called Our Kids, the American Dream in Crisis. And his conclusion is that we now have two Americas, that there's one America where people have a lot of opportunity and another America where people have very little opportunity. And at the end of the book, he says, poor kids, through no fault of their own, are less prepared by their families, their schools, their communities to develop their God-given talents as fully as rich kids. Well, obviously, this has tremendous consequences. You know, it leads to greater insecurity for people on the bottom. It uh, leads to loss of opportunity for people on the bottom. So what can we do? Well, a few of us, work in fields that allow us to influence how our society is organized. You know, you might uh, be involved in politics. You might be a professor doing research. You might uh, work in legislation. Uh, if you have that kind of influence to shape how our society is organized, I beg you to study biblical economics, to study God's vision for economic justice, and let that vision shape your policy decisions. But most of us don't have that opportunity. So the rest of us, what can we do to work for economic justice? A couple of things. First, share. There's a fascinating TED Talk by a writer named Rachel Botsman, and it's called Collaborative consumption. And uh, Time Magazine called it one of 10 ideas that will change the world. And in this TED Talk, she, she talks about instead of focusing on how much we can consume and how cheaply we can consume it, collaborative consumption focuses on sharing, swapping, renting, bartering, or trading. 
The idea is, is there actually are plenty of resources to go around, but we waste them, we hoard them, we hold on to them. And she believes that we're moving into a sharing economy where, where there, we can share the resources that we have. And she has some funny illustrations, such as, you know, the average drill is used 13 minutes in the lifetime of the drill. So I don't, we don't all need to buy a drill. I mean, what we need is a hole, and so we can share the drill, right? The average car sits empty for 23 hours a day. <laughs> you know, there, when you think about it, there's extraordinary waste in the way that we do, we do life together. Well, here's a good example of what she's talking about. Nora Hassel, a young mother in our church, noticed that there's, people had lots of stuff, people needed lots of stuff, but they were having trouble connecting with each other. And so she started a, a Facebook group called uh, Mine Is Yours, and I think you can get on it uh, easily. Um, and basically, you can't sell anything, nothing's for sale, but you post what you want or what you have, and uh, you match up. And it's a beautiful way to share stuff. Um, the thing that struck me about, about this is it just feels so much like the Trinity. It's so much rooted in this idea of abundance. It's so beautifully collaborative. And this speaker was a very good speaker, and I don't know if she's right or not, but she felt that we were at an epic change in the whole way our economy is structured from a hyper-consumptive model to a collaborative consumption model. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Second, we can simplify. In 2015, a, a book really blew up, and I think a lot of us read it. It was called The, the Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And the basic idea is that decluttering will bring you joy. Um, I haven't tried it yet, personally, but um, my, my wife has. brought her a lot of joy. Uh, <laughs> as I said, don't take that, please. But one of the things, it actually has brought me joy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, one of the things that, that's been fascinating to me as I've talked to you, a lot of you are starting to do this. And what, what struck me is how spiritual it is and how emotional it is as you, as you start to get into your stuff and how hard it is to get rid of it. And we actually had a little bump yesterday because Sandy showed me something that I never use, and I quickly told her I would never get rid of it, <laughs> you know. Um, and the author says this, when we really delve into the reasons for why we can't lump, let something go, there are only two, attachment to the past or fear of the future. So th this can actually be a very spiritual process to evaluate our stuff, and, 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 and I think real practically what it means is give away everything you don't need. and live off the rest. I think that would be a practical way for us to be a community. I don't know what to do about America. We could try that in here. I love what Nora's done with this Mine is Yours. That's a beautiful way to try to witness. Third, give. Nothing reminds us of our connection to stuff better than giving. 
Four, think. You know, I, I find that I don't think much about what I buy and how I buy it. And, and I, I think an economic system is kind of like the water that we swim in, and we're not really aware that this isn't the only way to do it. And so a lot of people are talking about being more mindful consumers. In other words, being more reflective when we make purchases. And so when I go and I, I buy something, typically my response is, how can I get it the best quality at the lowest price with the least amount of work? But perhaps I could also ask, is this company treating workers fairly? Are they paying them decent wages and benefits? Is there a reasonable gap between the top guy and the bottom guy, or is it an extraordinary? And maybe I could start buying things from companies that are more close to the, to the biblical model. You know, we talk about the witness value of this stuff. You probably remember a year ago, some CEO in Seattle, where else? It always starts in Seattle. You know, he's, you know, he's making a couple million a year and all this, and he decides, all right, I'm, gonna, um, I'm not going to make more than 75000 and I'm going to give everybody a huge raise. That was all over. The, 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 the news just couldn't believe it. Well, he's just practicing in a radical way, kingdom economics. Fifth, mentor. See, the, the real problem with economic inequality is inequality of opportunity, that poor kids don't have access to the networks that rich kids do, and so they get farther and farther behind. Uh, mentoring is more than just taking a little person to the movies. It's introducing to your network. And a good example of this, I'll call this, this guy Michael. Oh, gosh. Five, six years ago, he shows up at swimming. Uh, mother has addictions. Father's gone. He's living in between them both. It's, it's just a horrific situation. He keeps coming back. Second year, uh, one of the volunteer coaches named Melissa builds a relationship with him, just starts spending time with him. The volunteer coach introduces him to her boss. The boss kind of takes an interest in him. The boss introduced him to this charismatic young African-American named Dunstan who runs this thing called D-Block, and it's an exercise uh, fitness program. And so the little guy starts going to D-Block and, and then now is, was invited to join a, uh, a football team that the guy coaches. And so over the years, this, uh, this young man's network is just expanding beautifully and now he has, his mother is still very sick. His father has disappeared. But now he has this village of relationships around him. And I, I called him yesterday to check in. He tried out for the basketball team. And he said, uh, guess what, Coach Doug? I got all A's and B's. That, that man from where he was, that was a big, big thing. So mentoring is, is a wonderful way to do economic justice. Last of all, you know this, but teach one of the most effective ways to do justice is to teach or support a school like so many of you do. Uh, giving a child a good education is essential if the child is to have any chance of flourishing in our society. Now, here's where I want to end. Um, Amos is a gloomy book, uh, granted. But the, there is hope in it because it points to a different way of being human. 
it points to a kind of kingdom economics that is built in this model of abundance, not scarcity, and self-restraint rather than greed. I mean, that's really what it's all pointing to. And I'm having conversations with you, and I think some of you are starting to see this, that, that some of you are starting to wonder whether the way we've always done economics is the only way And some of you are starting to explore radical kingdom economic adventures that suggest there is a better way. Now, I'm one of those guys that's so entrenched in the old paradigm, I'm not going to see it until it hits me in the head. And a lot of times when you guys tell me about tiny houses and all these other crazy things, I just roll my eyes and think, you know, how are you going to pay for that? Things like that. You know, I, I pulled the dad card. But I think you're on to something. And I want to encourage you to keep exploring different ways of doing economics. Let's pray.